from the era that brought you names like Chamberlain, Russell, and West. To Chamberlain, he's got it! Jerry West made it from the other side of the mid-court strike! To the glory days of Magic and Kareem. And Magic Johnson is out there celebrating! Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is on the brink of an NBA all-time record. A time where last-second shots were expected. Here comes Kobe. From way outside. Got it! Oh, man! Gets it to LeBron. For three for the win! Yes! And rings were handed out like candy. Here's Jordan. Yes. It's Duncan Dynasty with your host, Garrett Bougay, and it starts right now. Welcome to another episode of Duncan Dynasty alongside my co host, Corbin Ford. I'm Garrett Bougay. On last week's episode, Corbin and I discussed our high school memories and uh, some of our uh, favorite moments from back in the day. This week, we're going to be talking all things NBA and, uh, in particular, our fandom. I hope you enjoy. I did want to move on and, and hear some of your thoughts just in terms of some of your favorite players and, and teams growing up and, and maybe some of your, your favorite players and teams now. Okay, definitely. So... Growing up, I mean, it was a big moment when I picked my favorite team, and I still remember when I did it. Um, it's 2003, and I loved the purple and gold of the Lakers. And I went, you know what? That's my team. It had nothing to do with Kobe, nothing to do with Shaq. If anything, um, my favorite player growing up was, I mean, I'm from New York. It was the Knicks and the Trails Freewell. Love that guy. Um, he could do no wrong. I thought he was such a superstar. I thought he honestly was like, one of the best players to play. One tight group a little bit. Um, and then it's even funnier now, like, knowing the stats and everything and reading stuff from John Hall and John him and going, oh, he wasn't all that great, but he just <laughs> felt so great. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. my earliest memories watching him in the 99 finals against uh, the Spurs, and he really went off in game five, and that was kind of the game they needed to win. Um, and they didn't, but he was hitting threes and, you know, all sorts of stuff. And so he was my, my he was the guy. But... So hold hold on just a second. Let me let me catch you off there in terms of picking the O three Lakers. For one, I'll yes. say I mean rough timing to to join the fan club right after the three peat. Um, uh, secondly, um, I, I've I've got to throw this out there because uh, anybody that that joins the fan club of the three time champions has got to be questioned on whether or not they are a bit of a bandwagon fan. Okay, so for me, I know, I know. For the Lakers, I I answer this now by saying no. Only because, yeah, I knew they'd won. And I was still watching basketball. I just wasn't as like, oh, this is going to be my thing. As I was, you know, 8-year-old, 9-year-old Corbin then. But I say no because 03, I think we lose. Is the second round? I think it was the second round. To, to the, Spurs. the Spurs. Yep. Yep. And that was the Ori shot where everything was going in for Robert Ori, big shot, Rob. But nobody brings up, well, they actually do, but I didn't know they did then. Nobody brings up the one shot that he could have made that was in and out, didn't go in. Fine. 2004, we all know what we're on there. I remember being so hyped that Carl Malone was on that team and that Gary Payton was there. And it was like, yes, like, this is going to be the team that wins it all. And then we, like... We didn't even really put up a fight against the, the Pistons. They did have the they did have the the epic Derek Fisher point four shot though, which I still contest did not get off in time, and it was a scorekeeping error. Oh oh no, that was that was that was 
shot-making by one of the great underrated point guards of our time. <laughs> uh, one of the great point guards ever to not make an all-star team. Derek Fisher, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, that was amazing. That, what's funny to me is that I, I remember them playing the Rockets. It was the Rockets, it was the Spurs, and it was the Timberwolves that year. Because that was the year that... Uh, KG uh, 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 was yeah. was incredible, yeah. Exactly. By the point I was watching, I hadn't been following the Timberwolves all the time. What, eight, nine? Yeah, I hadn't been following the Timberwolves like, that year. So I knew KG was great. Um, and I uh, obviously seen Latrell pretty well. But injuries were there. I knew Latrell played well and KG played well, but they couldn't stop us. I wasn't really worried. Um, and I didn't even remember being too worried about the Spurs at the time. Like, that game wasn't there about it, but I thought we were just the better team. But I thought we were the entire time. Um, even with Car- Carmelone, you know, kind of showing his age a little bit, really being injured, and then flaming out against, you know, uh, the Pistons. Uh, I think we won game two, and that was really it. And after that, it was kind of dog days. It was it was, it was was days where I was rooting for uh, Brian Cook to be our next great stretch four. Um, <laughs> <laughs> those were times uh, I was, in, like, living off and dying off of every Kobe shot, uh, as a lot of us were that time. Uh, Karan Butler gave us a great year. Um, I remember we had Vladi Divac back, and I wasn't there when he was first with the Lakers, but I remember some old highlights of him. Uh, Luke Walton played a really big role. Those are the guys I remember. Lamar Odom. Uh, 2006 happened. Smush Parker, Kwame Brown. That was the year that, oh my gosh. Okay, so for one, I, I like a lot of Laker fans, I loved Smush Parker when he first started. It wasn't until later that I went, oh no, this dude is trash. But, <laughs> like, Starting off, well, I was a big Smush Parker fan because after we'd gotten rid of, by this point, um, Derek Fisher, I think it was with the Warriors and then the Jazz during this time, but um, we were kind of cycling through guards. Like, oh, this guy would be a nice great guy. This guy would be a nice great guy. Uh, and we kind of kept, until, until now, really, we've kept doing that. Um, but it was like, oh, yeah, Smush, you can get to the basket pretty well. He wasn't, like, the best three-point shooter, but I thought he was pretty solid. Um, and I just thought he could be a great piece overlooking – um, Lamar Odom or anyone else who was probably more suited to be a, a, a secondary uh, sidekick for Kobe. And I had an irrational love for Devin George. I have to, I have to bring that up as well. Uh, for someone who just spied up and hit threes and played passable defense, you you would have you would have thought he'd be the second person I built a franchise around in 2006. So, <laughs> <laughs> that was it. But um, to be brief, run through that. So Lakers growing up, obviously, um, the highs were, were high. You know, 2009, 2010 were great. The lows, 2006, that, uh, 2013, oh, this is going to be fun team. Oh, my gosh. I remember being so hyped about that team, and then it was so painful. Um, but th- I haven't really had – what I always do is I the Lakers are my default team. Win or lose, I mean, the last, what, before LeBron, the last three years were, were pretty rough. Um, they're always going to be the team to root for first. And then I always pick, like, one or two teams that I will choose to closely follow, and that will fluctuate based on a combination of, like, favorite players or a team I'm interested in, whatever. So I'll have, like, four – Three or four teams I'm a fan of for a year, but only the Lakers kind of carries through. Um, but then, real quick, just to run through my favorite players, I think I like. I, I realize now that I have a type in that I like the players that most people like to hate. Um, so <laughs> it was a trust pretty well growing up. Then it was uh, Monte Ellis. Okay. Monte Ellis and Michael Beasley. Michael Beasley. Beasley. Yes, I thought he could be the next star, man. Even now, if I like pop up the classic 2K, like 2K13. If it's a fantasy draft, I'm starting with him. If I'm playing with a different team, I'm trading for him. If I'm drafting the Timberwolves or the Suns, depending on the year, he's my feature player. I thought he was amazing. Like, maybe the heads, 
space wasn't quite there, but the talent level, he could score at all three levels. I thought he could even grow into like a point four. Saw some things that most people didn't even see. Like, I was all over Michael Beasley, man. That was my guy. Yeah, I think um, um, with Jed, with with Beasley and uh, and I think Derek Williams fits into that archetype as well. That yes. that uh, that versatile four. But I think the thing that went wrong for both of them was for the that three level offense, like you mentioned, to work. You've got to be respected from three, and neither of those guys, I think, got to that level. No, no, I'd agree. I mean, I would even put both of them surprisingly, like as they went on in their careers, just like stop shooting the three, really. Cause I remember going like, why? Like you guys, I mean, they weren't great from distance, but like you said, like that clearly wasn't. I know it was more of a strength for Beasley than it was for Williams, but Williams was taking them more. But he's another guy. Although I never caught on with Derek Williams quite as much as I did with Beasley. But yeah, you you kind of nailed it. I mean, that and the fact that they weren't like the guys to take over a game that they were like drafted in positions of being. You know what I mean? Like you can probably count your fingers the amount of times that Michael B's like took over. You know, and you'd be counting like with really like three fingers. You know, I can't even remember a Derek Williams story like that. I think the most like damning argument against Beasley for me was in 2013 we went to the Suns and that was the team <laughs> obviously I chose to follow that season um, and he was kind of built up as the lead guy you know just during the Lance Blanks era it was a lot of mishaps in uh, Phoenix in that year um, ownership wise or, or GM wise but I went oh wow you know he's 24 he's coming to his own he's going to be great he's going to be the featured guy and he did literally nothing it felt like I mean he took like less shots than he was taking. He averaged ten points a game, and I remember the ten points just offhand. And I was like, "Come on, be more aggressive." And the only games that he was more aggressive on were against my Lakers, and we were already being beat up by everything. <laughs> it was it was frustrating. It was frustrating. And then my last player, um, and I've only been a fan of his for like the last four years now, um, Russell Westbrook. It's it's funny, you know. We talked about our contrasting sort of styles of play and how we might have meshed well. I think that also kind of forms who we like watching also you know you you mentioned you're more of a slasher which that's exactly what Westbrook is so I I kind of get that understand that the the fact that you kind of lean towards him more whereas I like more of the like the, the player that I considered myself to be which is more focusing on on the skill development and that sort of thing and not relying on that athleticism um, so, you know, one of my, I'm a little bit older than you, so one of my first guys that I really loved watching was in the late 90s, and that was Zadrunas Ilgauskas. Uh, my, uh, my, my dad was from, uh, is from a suburb of Cleveland, North Olmstead, so he was all, all about Cleveland sports, the Indians, Cavs, and Browns, and, and he passed that on to me. So I was a big-time Cleveland fan, and in those late 90s, you know, prior to, uh, Ilgauskas ha- suffering those foot injuries, he was actually a pretty nimble guy for his size. And uh, he had a little bit more of a game. You know, when you when you saw Ilgauskas with LeBron, he was more just a, a standstill pick-and-pop player and, and you know, a, a force at the rim in terms of rim protection. But in his early days, he was actually quite nimble, showed off some pretty good footwork, some good agility. He was really fun, and, and I think he, he would have been a, uh, you know, I think he ended up making two all-star teams, but I think he would have made five or six if it weren't for, for the injuries that he suffered. Yeah, I agree. I agree. That guy was, was something else. He said great um, later on for LeBron, kind of one of the better big men he could have played with. You know, yep. in terms of his style, great shooting, deft footwork. Yeah, that's that's a guy. You know, and that's, yeah, I can see him being 
so that you could watch and be like, you know what? I appreciate like the intricacies of his game, you know? Yes. Um, and, and yeah, like obviously uh, being a Cavs fan, as soon as LeBron came, I was all about LeBron, his ability to pass the basketball. Uh, you know, he just, he just dazzled. And I'll also say, though, you know, I, I got the experience, uh, fortunate experience, to see Michael Jordan twice in person. Uh, I saw him in 1995 when he was wearing number 45 coming off the baseball retirement in Detroit. And then, uh, you know, I was, I was just five at the time, so I barely remember that. Um, but, but uh, you know, the, the first real basketball memory I have is those early Cavs teams. And I also got to see Jordan in his final season in 98 in Miami. We took, uh, we took yearly trips to Disney World when I was a kid. So uh, we, we ended up getting to see him in, in the Miami Heat arena. So that was, that was really great. But, but yeah, the, you know, getting to see a bunch of, of great LeBron games through the years. I saw uh, Game 6 of the 2007 Eastern Conference Finals. That game, the, the Cavs beat the Pistons and advanced to their first NBA Finals and, and make their first NBA Finals appearance. Uh, that was the game Booby Gibson, I think, hit six or seven threes. Uh, and, yeah, and then uh, I saw uh, two. I went to the 2009 Eastern Conference Finals game two, the the game where LeBron hit the the buzzer beater to beat the Magic. Dude, uh, oh my goodness, that was a game. Yeah, that was uh, that was an incredible moment. Being in the arena with 20,000 people going nuts all at the same moment that was that was quite special. Uh, and then I, I got to see LeBron in in game six of the 2016 NBA Finals. Uh, just absolutely dissecting the Warriors, especially in that first quarter where they blew Golden State away and, and Curry got in foul trouble. Uh, so, so I've gotten to see some some great LeBron performances over the years. But yeah, like speaking of uh, current players and some of the guys that I really enjoy watching. I mean, obviously Steph Curry is is one of my absolute favorite guys to watch. I really love Kyle Lowry. He's another guy that again doesn't rely on that athleticism. He's all about that basketball IQ, that grit, um, and and that skill development. And and also a guy like speaking back to my love of Zdrunas Ilgauskas. I love big men that can pass. You know, I love watching uh, Nikola Jokic play. Oh yeah, now this this fits the like exactly what you're talking about archetypes as far as the play styles and the attention to detail and the fundamentals. That's I mean you can't argue that if we're gonna draft the top five of our favorite players, I think your team wins. Um, <laughs> I will still uh, argue for untapped potential out of my guys, but as I'll enter their early to mid thirties, I don't know if I have that argument anymore. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, I I also wanted to. Um... You know, it's it's coming up on the 10-year anniversary of the decision. And uh, I was wondering, Corbin, if you would be willing to be my therapist for a bit and let me bare my soul to you about uh, how the decision impacted me. You know what? I am, I'm putting on my hat right now because I'm here. <laughs> Let's get it. So, again, anybody that knew me in high school knew I just was absolutely... Uh, devoted and was the biggest Cavs fan. I, I know everybody says that, but I watched every game. I uh, I um, was was incredibly committed, you know. And and basketball has always been something that I've taken a lot more serious than than the average person. You know, anytime someone says, "Oh, basketball, it's just a game," or or whatever, that always irritated me hearing someone say that because, like, you know, it was always important to me, and I don't really care if it's not important to you. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, like, that's my thing. It is 
is. Yeah. Um, so, you know, 2010 happens, and, you know, the, the series with Boston where they're up 2-1. LeBron puts on a magical performance in Game 3. I'm thinking, you know what, this is the year. We're going to win the championship. And then all of a sudden, those last three games of that series, LeBron completely disappears. They lose. And then, you know, obviously this, this free agency question is, is pending. And I kept going back to the logic of, you know, I've always been a very analytical, logical person that, that is really focusing on reason. And I just kept saying to myself, there's no way he's going to, to do this live TV special just to disappoint millions of Cavs fans. I just couldn't fathom that that would be what he would do. So I was convinced he was staying. And when he uttered those words, you know, I'm taking my talents to, to South Beach, I'm not going to lie, I, I went up right to my right up to my bedroom and, and I cried the, for the rest of the night. Um, I was devastated. And for, for LeBron's entire tenure with the Miami Heat, I became like, uh, you know, not only did I, I remained a Cavs fan, but it almost became more about rooting for the team that was playing LeBron James. I was that, you know, heartbroken and devastated by it. And so, you know, the 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 2011 finals I had I, I enjoyed that tremendously. <laughs> that Mavericks team beating the Heat, I was like this is this is what you deserve sort of feeling. Um And uh, you know, in when he won his first title, obviously that was tough because, you know, the only thing I can think at that moment is you could have done that for the Cavs, you know, that you could have done that for us sort of thing. Um, and in 2013, I was, uh, you know, jumping up and down when, when Tony Parker scored the five straight points in game six to put the Spurs up and it looked like they were going to to beat LeBron and the Heat. And then uh, I actually had a couple of friends over for that game, and when Miami makes that crazy run and end up winning in overtime, I'm just, uh, you know, stewing, sitting here on the couch, and uh, my friends basically look at each other, and they're like, uh, "What?" They, they told me this after the fact, but one of them whispered to the other, uh, should we leave? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> But uh, but anyways, I mean, so you, that kind of helps you get a uh, an idea into my my psyche. And of course, as as time went on, I got less and less angry with the whole situation. You know, time heals all wounds. But but when he when he you know did the whole "I'm coming home" letter, it was really a um, you know I, I think pretty much 98% of Cleveland fans just immediately were like, yep, we forgive you, all is forgiven, you're, you're great, and we love you. Um, yes. For me, I had really the opposite reaction. I had the feeling of, oh, you think just by coming back everything's going to be okay, you know? And uh, um, I'm supposed to just forget that I've spent the last four years actively rooting against you winning basketball games. <laughs> Um, and, and yes, like I, I also looked at it as, you know, from the perspective of, oh, this is just a PR play. He is doing this purely for his own legacy, for his own, um, 
you know, his own conscience that he doesn't want Clevelanders to hate him for the rest of his life. And also, like, he's already got his championships, so he can now take the risk to play out the rest of his career trying to win one for Cleveland because he already got his. Um, so, so that's kind of how I felt about the whole thing. And it, uh, you know, within the first game of the season, I came to the realization that I was no longer a Cavs fan uh, of that 2014-15 season because, you know, it's, it's not as if, you know, being a fan isn't as much a conscious choice. It just kind of happens, you know. And um, when you watch a team that you're a fan of, you just have an inherent desire for them to succeed. And as soon as that desire went away, you know, that, that opening game of the, the 2014-15 regular season, I had no desire for the Cavs to succeed. Uh, so I knew at that very moment that... Um, that uh, my fandom with with uh, specifically the Cavs, I'm still a I'm still a huge Browns fan to this day. Um, my 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 fandom of the Indians have kind of dis- has kind of dissipated with my uh, you know growing boredom with the sport of baseball as I get older. Uh, but uh, specifically with Cleveland, you know that kind of started the um, you know becoming more of a fan of the entire league and watching the the sport from a neutral perspective. So looking back on it now, I'm kind of thankful for LeBron that he gave me the ability to watch the sport in the way that I do now. Uh, and obviously, I don't have uh, you know that that uh, hate in my heart or disdain for him anymore, uh, like I like I did for a few years there. Uh, but but yeah, I. I um, I figured I would I would get that off my chest. I've never actually uh, gone on a podcast and, and talked about that, but I thought that might be might be interesting. No, I am glad you did. I'm, I'm thankful for it because that was from an outside looking in a great perspective to see that. I've always struggled with maintaining, at least when it comes to my Lakers fandom, with that in, in neutrality because you know we both love basketball. NBA basketball is like literally life. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Having that, okay, analyzing strengths and weaknesses, like, I, I, I can't do it for Westbrook. I won't even pretend to be, um, I won't even pretend to be objective about that because I think that everyone else is against it in general. And, oh, well, you guys just use numbers, even though I'm very much a number person analytically or try to be speaking. But you got to watch the games and see. And it's like, well, we do watch the games. We just don't like the guy. You know what I mean? Not him, but just the way he plays. And I think when you do it, you do such a great job of watching it analytically and just from a net game of basketball, the great players and those who fit this, you know, the ideal way of providing um, winning value to your team. That for myself, who tries to look at it that way, but it's definitely like, all right, Westbrook, get yourself 40. Where's that triple double? You know what I mean? (laughs) It's funny to see that, okay? (laughs) You had a team that was like, you know, you were with full out. And so when you reacted to LeBron and the decision, I felt that. I didn't really have that much got me with Cody Lakers, you know. So I'm like, okay, whatever. <laughs> um, it didn't really have that same impact to me. However, when he did, I was definitely against the super team thing. I've always kind of been against that. I thought, and again, I guess it's easy for me to say the Lakers fan. I thought the way the Lakers did it, and I guess the Celtics too, was organically in that, okay, we're going to trade for this player. And we already have a homegrown star, and we're going to pair those two together with maybe a third person, and that's how we're going to form our team. When the Heat just said, oh, we're just going to do this, no, I was, I was against it, and I was so glad that LeBron 
um, lost to the Mavericks. I didn't even like the Mavericks, especially the way they handled us in the playoffs that year. They weren't they weren't the team I liked. Yeah. But I was like, well, you know, I got to root for them since they're going against the Heat. It was like, which team do you hate the least? Um, and then, you know, he won those championships and everything. And then another player like that, in fact, I don't want to, I want to ask you this in a tangent kind of way. What's one player that, and this should be interesting for you as someone who just kind of watches objectively, that you just can't stand? Because for me, it's Kevin Durant. Um, watching that 2016 playoff series and thinking, okay, the, the Thunder have solved this uh, death lineup matchup by just going bigger and playing better. They really were. I thought that Russell was bringing the aggression he needed and Kevin Durant was pacing them. We had role players step up. Andre Roberson must have hit 60% from three through, like, four games. Like, it was amazing. And then, you know, the Warriors did what the Warriors do, and they came back and won, and, you know, everything happened. I said, okay, it's fine. There's nothing to retool. I think they already made the trade for Victor Oladipo at the time. So, okay, now we finally have the shooting guard that we have not had the past four years since we had lost James Harden. You have Westbrook. You have Oladipo. You have Durant. Um, Steven Adams. I didn't really know what to think. Uh, Steven Adams. I didn't know what to think about DeMontis Sabonis, but I figured they can make some depth pieces or depth moves for, for that. And then we'll be right back there. And guess what? The Warriors are looking at their Western Conference rival for the next four years. They're right there. They're the OKC Thunder. And then in one horrific night, Durant just turned on his head and lost me forever. Yeah, I mean, the the decisions, obviously, at the time when Durant left for Golden State, that was compared to, to LeBron's choice. And I think in both situations, it was a matter of, okay, these guys had, had come very close. You know, you talk about the, you know, everyone likes to rip on those, those Cavs teams that LeBron played on in the late 2000s. And I get that a lot of it, a lot of the success they had was due to LeBron's brilliance, but you don't win 66 games. You don't win 61 games without a decent supporting cast. I mean, uh, Mo Williams at the time was an all-star. I thought Anderson Varejao was one of the most underrated uh, big men in the entire sport. Uh, you know, we've already talked about Zydrunas Ogauskas. I thought he was a solid player. Even even Drew Gooden uh, was, was a solid power forward, and, and he was one of the Cavs' best players in that 2007 finals. Um, but, uh, you know, you... You talk about those teams and you say, yeah, maybe if LeBron stays in Cleveland, maybe those teams just aren't good enough. But I also will point to, in 2009, they, they lost four games to two to the Orlando Magic in the Eastern Conference Finals, but the Magic, as a team, shot 40% from three. Like, Michael Petras hit, shot near 50% for the series. You know, they just were... It was... And, and Hito Turkoglu had... Uh, a season where, you know, he, he played out of his mind. And him and Richard Lewis, I think Richard Lewis even got uh, um, got punished by the NBA for taking performance-enhancing drugs the, the, for, for the start of the next season. So there's a, chan- <laughs> there's a chance that those guys were just, uh, you know, illegally boosting their game to help the team. I thought the Cavs were really close that year. And then even in 2010, LeBron has that awful Game 5 in that Eastern Conference semis against Boston. The Cavs blow a 2-1 series lead, and Boston gets within, you know, a couple of shots of, of winning the championship, losing that uh, epic seven-game series against the Lakers. But the Cavs were incredibly close. And, and yeah, that is that was the frustration for me about both of the LeBron's and Durant's decision was your teams are incredibly close to getting to the, the summit, the, the goal that you're aiming for, and instead they decided to take the route of least resistance. Yeah, 
I get that. I mean, for me, you're right. Looking back, and this would be something kind of fun to delve into, like the what ifs in terms of. I don't. Uh, okay, Miami Heat built their team that way. If you know, Boston stay with Toronto or that. I don't know what kind of angle you can go there, but like, you look at Cleveland. They still have the team that I think was solid. I think they were kind of built around LeBron to the point that, and this is what kind of shocked me. You have you know players leave teams, and you. I like to look at what is left after. You know. That's how, and I don't know if that is probably not a fair estimation of, of figuring out how great that supporting cast was to that player or how much that player propped up those players. But you realize both times that LeBron left were just horrible. You know what I mean? In terms of the talent around him. The 2011 team, you probably can speak more to that than I can um, as far as that. But you had what, old Antoine Jameson, who had, I mean, I, he was really kind of fading in Cleveland, in my opinion, there. You had Mo Williams, who was solid, but. I mean, unless you thought Mo Williams was going to develop into anything more than he was, I wasn't high on that. And I think he got traded for Baron Davis, right? And once that happened, I think they kind of threw in the towel. They were really talking about, from this, you, again, you know more than I do on that, but from the vantage point of saying, okay, Byron Scott's the new head coach, we're going to kind of be a grind back to basics type of team that's going to be competitive and give people the fight of their lives every time we play them. And, and that's not what happened. But, like, what, what do you remember about just the team after, you know? So, yeah, I mean, the, the, the biggest variable, I think, that, that needs to be considered when you talk about, yeah, the, the theory of, okay, let's just look at the team after the, pl- the great player leaves, and if they suck, that means the supporting cast was bad, and if they're good, that means the supporting cast was good. I think the flaw in that logic is the idea that LeBron James was very much the system. Uh, that you mentioned that the whole team, not only the personnel was built around LeBron, but even the offensive and defensive systems were built around LeBron's abilities. And it's been like that for his entire career. You know, we, we, you even look at the, the Lakers team this season, and they're really, their offense is just LeBron. Uh, and, you know, when, when he's off the floor, even with a guy as good as Anthony Davis, uh, they're, they're pretty much like an average basketball team. Um, so LeBron is different in that respect. Whereas, you know, if you compare the, the Chicago Bulls when Michael Jordan left, uh, in his first retirement and that Bulls team still won 54 games for one, you still had, you still had Phil Jackson as the coach. You still had a system that worked regardless of the talent. So, so yeah, was the talent that the Cavs had around LeBron like optimal or ideal? Like, no, no. But I think it was good enough, especially given that LeBron continued to improve all the way up through, I think, 2013 with the Heat, that, that I think they could have gotten it done. Uh, but, but yeah, one of the reasons also that, that that Cavs team was so bad the following year, I think, was a lot of injuries. You know, I think Verizhao started off the season great and then got hurt. Mo Williams suffered some injuries. And, yeah, you had some, you had some age-related stuff with, with Jamison as well. And also, you know, you lost both centers in the course of one offseason. You you had Shaquille O'Neal and Ilgauskas, and then the following season you had neither. Yeah, that is true. Although, yeah, that, that, that's true. you got to bring that up as well. And both those guys were, were paramount to, to kind of having that supporting cast for Cleveland. I get what you mean. I guess the only, I, I can't even really argue that as far as the team construction because I saw, like you said, as a Lakers fan, that the team relied on this one guy as the offensive system. You know, it's great, and then it has a detriment. But then again, I guess that when you aren't making shots or, or playing in that way, is it like a knock on the system itself? 
especially, I mean, you had LeBron playing about games where you've seen him just kind of give, not minimal effort, but just less than he could, or, or not even that, just had a bad shooting night, and then the team loses. But in terms of with that system, like the inherent benefits of that is, okay, you're guaranteed with LeBron 50-plus wins and deep into the playoffs. But then the flaws on that, does that, is that not on LeBron the system, or do you knock down the supporting cast itself, or do you put that as a combination of the two? I think that's an interesting question to ask, you know? Yeah, I, I honestly would put it more on LeBron. Uh, I think okay. the the whole, and I think it also benefits him, though, when you look at plus-minus statistics. He looks a lot better in those categories because of the fact that he is so ball-dominant and the basically he's never really been willing to. You know, David Blatt, I think in part, those guys butted heads because Blatt wanted to run an actual system. And, you know, he brought some, some ideas from, from his success as a coach in Europe. He wanted to play more of a, a motion sort of offense a la like the 2014 San Antonio Spurs. And LeBron was just unwilling to do that. So, yeah, I think it, you do have to put a lot of that on LeBron. But I do think it also um, weirdly boosts his, uh, his resume from a statistical standpoint because, yeah, his, his dominance of the ball and his unwillingness to play in a system for the large portion of his career has benefited his, uh, his on-off and value numbers. Yeah, I see what you mean. Like, it, it, he give it, he's taking away the LeBron offensive system in terms of just, I think the mastering control of the game from that position, the way he's able to do it is amazing, but I also see how he turns players who, you know, were before just adequate kind of offensive creators in their own right into like standstill one-dimensional players. We've, we've talked, they talk a lot about uh, Chris Bosh, about Kevin Love, we even saw with some of the, the new guys who came in who, to, 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 you know, give LeBron some credit, that 2018 overhaul when you bring in Rodney Hood, and Jordan Clarkson and uh, George Hill and them. I mean, Jordan Clarkson and Hood could create a lot more off the bounce, but it wasn't like they were crazy efficient or crazy great anyway. So I don't give that as a knock on LeBron, but even then you could suddenly see the changes that were made just off, even in that half a season with LeBron down. Well, and, and let me be absolutely clear here that despite me saying that, uh, yeah, that's a knock against LeBron, I would take... LeBron and his offensive si- or his non-offensive system over an offensive system and no LeBron any day of the week. Uh, and uh, speaking to you know you, you mentioned one of your favorite players is Russell Westbrook. I think there's a part of that in his game as well. And you know his um, that that 2017 NBA MVP season. We don't need to get into that too much, but um, part of part of the argument for him also is those on-off numbers. And I think a it was another situation where Billy Donovan wanted to to create an offensive system there, but Russell Westbrook uh, basically did the LeBron and said, "No, I'm I'm just going to be the system," and that hurts the play of the bench. Again, you, you look at what Westbrook did and and what LeBron has done offensively throughout their careers. I think it it works well having just them handle the ball a ton. It you know it has proven to be a good offensive strategy. My issue is yeah for those minutes they're off the floor. That's when it's a uh, you know it does a disservice to the team. Yeah no I see what you mean and that and that's honestly been the downfall of LeBron much less than Westbrook. Um, but I guess Westbrook's decline the last two years hasn't really helped that too much. But yeah I see what you mean because then it's like the bench coming in with a whole fresh start going oh what are we doing like uh we're you know you can't emulate what those players did. Um, at least to a reasonable enough defect because there's a reason those players are who they are. Exactly. So that's asking a lot of to have to do that. 
but at the same time, you're right. If you don't even have a basic offensive system in place, I guess I can understand the hand flaws there. And yeah, again, not to go in the 2017 season too much, but we saw it all the time when you went with a Samaj Christian or a Norris Cole. <laughs> and these guys, I'm like, what are you guys doing? Like, and I, again, I use this to fit the narrative, hashtag narrative. But, you know, Russell Westbrook doesn't have help off the bench because these point guards are trash. But, you know, to a certain extent, even I could go, okay, well, you know, what do they have to go off of? You know, so I, I kind of get both sides of that for certain. Yeah, Samaj A. Christian was just a terrible basketball player, regardless of oh, whether he was, uh, regardless of whether he was in a good offensive system or not. Uh, he was not going to be very effective. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll give you that. But uh, yeah, let's <laughs> let's uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, some of your, uh, if you've got some off the top of your head, some of your all-time favorite uh, games, series, uh, and uh, even maybe some a great performance that you've gotten to see in person. And I would actually prefer, in, as far as that f- final question, maybe something that wasn't nationally televised that maybe a lot of people haven't witnessed that maybe uh, is special to you. Okay, so I actually do have one of those. I, a lot of the games I've, I've caught live weren't super, I guess, great games in terms of, like, uh, especially memorable. It was like, oh, they're expecting a good matchup, and, you know, it didn't work out the way I thought it would. Uh, a lot of Lakers Suns games living in Arizona. Um, I think more of the experience of that was funny because, especially down here, um, it, you know, there's a lot of Lakers fans in Phoenix. Or if you didn't know that, you do. There's a lot of Lakers fans in Phoenix, and so going to a Suns game is is very much. Um, it's almost like a home game for the Lakers, but the atmosphere in the crowd is electric because you have the trash talk. Nothing get too crazy. You have the back and forth. Um, but what's funny about that is you have, you know, Lakers fans repping their team and Phoenix going right back and the crowd's divided. And Phoenix hasn't been super great, but LA's been horrible. So the gameplay-wise has actually been mostly competitive up until the last two years of LeBron. Um, and I remember one game, I can't even pinpoint the exact year, but the Lakers were down a lot, as we were wont to do in 2017, 2018, those kind of games. Um, and what happened? Okay, so... We were down. It was my best friend was bragging on me. A lot of guys were like, "Yeah, blue Lakers, you know, whatever it is, <laughs> you know, beat LA, all that stuff." And then Nick Young caught fire, um, <laughs> and he was just knocking down shots. And this is, you know, Nick Young. He's the gift that gives, and he's the gift that keeps taking and taking, you know. But <laughs> the Lakers, then he was so I keep, he was on it, and he shot us back into the game. And I was like, "Oh my gosh!" Like. This is awesome. Like, we are getting this. You know what I mean? Um, and we, I remember us rising. We were getting hot. Our, our Lakers team were like, let's go. You know, getting the height. And then Nick Young took a bad shot. Uh, Jordan Clarkson took a bad shot. We lost the game. But I remember laughing at how crazy it was when Lakers fans were, it, it like epitomized fandom. We were desperate for anything that season. And we were like, okay, at least beat Phoenix. Because, you know, that off-again quasi-rivalry we have is there, right? And then we, the climbing back was the exciting part because you could feel the energy. And it's nothing like feeding off a crowd or just feeding off the energy of sports in general, but for me, basketball exclusively. And it's like, oh my gosh. And that, that was, that was, that was one distinct memory I remember where, yeah, the outcome wasn't great, but that comeback and if you could bottle that energy and just keep it whenever I'm tired, I'd never be tired in my life. <laughs> but Out of, uh, 
out of out of all the players that I thought you would you would bring up in in listing one of your your favorite performances in person, I, I did not expect to hear the name Nick Young. Uh, listen, I <laughs> I've been trying to find the actual date. It shouldn't be that hard to like find out what game he was hot on. But I think some of the magic was in not even knowing the exact date, just knowing it happened, knowing I was there, and yeah, Nick Young of all people. And this is that was the second time he ever did that. Um. The first time was a 20, I think it was a 2014, it was 2014, uh, Christmas Day against LeBron and the Heat. And again, we were a bad team, but all of a sudden Ryan Kelly hit a three and I said, oh, this might be. And then Nick Young took over in the third quarter into the fourth and kept us in that game. And I was like, let's go. Again, Lakers fans, rough time when you're putting a lot of your hope and dreams on psyche people. That's what we were doing for a minute there. (laughs) Um, Another game was the 2016, I was in California at the time. Um, and it was a Kings vs. Thunder matchup. Okay. And I remember that was a good one. Um, it was DeMarcus Cousins at the time. Um, I think Aaron Flala played well. It was definitely um, Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant. I had really decent seats at the time. I remember going, wow, like Kevin Durant is long. And his feet were like hockey pucks, how long he was. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Russell Westbrook was so much faster on like in person than I've seen on camera. And I'm saying a lot because, you know, the dude's like a speed demon. Um and DeMarcus Cubs was dominant. I think it was like a, a minor brush-up where Steven Adams kind of fell on um, DeMarcus Cousins' um, ankle and kind of like hung on it, like trying to get a call or something. And DeMarcus whirled around like he was going to punch Steven Adams in the head for a second. And I was like, oh, snap. But he didn't. But the crowd like caught that whole, like, oh, there's a real danger in the air type thing. You know what I mean? And yeah. He, I swear he almost did it. In fact, I'm looking it up now and, and have the, the date there. But it was like a brush-up. And he kind of rolled his weight around there. Oh, March 1st, 2016. He got his ankle hooked up because Stephen Adams, like, hooked his arm around Cousins' um, ankle, like, trying to show the ref, hey, listen, I got fouled. And DeMarcus is, like, trying to move around, trying to move around, and then turns around and, like, pump, like, balls his fist up. Like, you know, fitness. And then decides not to, which was smart. But this was when DeMarcus was all over the place, you know. Uh yeah. That King's tenure was crazy. And it was actually a really decent game. Um, if I remember correctly, the Thunder won. But DeMarcus played well. And I remember going, wow, like, this was seen, in my mind, a marquee matchup. Because, okay, actually, I looked it up now. The Thunder pulled away. They won 131-116. But from watching it, I just remember going, wow, this is, you know, Durant's shot was money. And it, it was something about seeing him in person and seeing that live and just going, this is this is great. You know, Westbrook had a triple double. Durant played well. I thought that Demarcus impressed me just with how well he played. But it turns out he had 35 points and 12 rebounds, but took 33 shots and had six turnovers. I don't remember that. Um, <laughs> but it was fun. It was really fun. And then my last like favorite moment live was um just this past year. Uh, one of my family, well, one of my mom and dad took a game. We watched. Uh, well, no, this was. Two years ago now, yeah. Knicks vs. Suns, um, and, and watching Christoph Porzingis. Um, and we had really, really good seats, so much that we could hear uh, we could hear Michael Beasley cursing on the bench um, <laughs> when he got pulled out. And he was playing well, and I, there was this random fan who was, like, talking to this other guy in the back going, if we just get Kylo Quinn some more minutes, we could be a top-five team in the East. And I was like, bro, like, no, you couldn't, like, <laughs> you have the freaking unicorn on your team. And you're not even sniffing that. Forget Kylo Quinn. It was the most hilarious time. 
watching Kristaps go off, watching, okay, this is the next new guy that I penciled in as a next superstar in this league. Um, I've suddenly changed him on my rankings now. But just looking at him and going, wow, it's crazy. Seeing Devin Booker kind of go off, and it, it was a fun game. So my mem- you had a lot more memorable game experiences than I did. I was really banking a lot on Summer League this year on making up for, uh, for really good uh, games I watched live. But um, those are the three I have. No, those are those are good, yeah, and and that's kind of what I was going for is uh, you know some more stuff like just a, a random regular season game that, uh, that that had an impact, and I've actually got a couple of college games that I wanted to, to reference, and one of them I saw in person, and one I uh, saw on TV, but um, you know I, I live here, and I already mentioned I'm I live in Northwest Ohio in a in a town called Finley, and uh, Finley's actually where Ben Roethlisberger is from. Uh, the the quarterback for the Steelers, um, but uh, we have a a really really good Division two college basketball team here, and we've been you know one of the you know we've been ranked basically in Division two for I shouldn't say we because I never went to the school but I do live in the town uh, <laughs> the uh, the, the uh, University of Finley's been ranked in Division two for probably the last ten to fifteen years. Um, so, you know, they're kind of a powerhouse and in 2009, they, uh, they went undefeated during the entire regular season. You know, division two has a similar March madness sort of bracket as division one does. And, uh, they went all the way through to the, to the championship game, still undefeated 35 and 0 heading into the championship game. And, uh, they uh, they actually had one of their one of the players on this team ended up getting a tryout with the Pistons, but uh, he didn't he didn't eventually make it. Um, but uh, they uh, they played in the championship game. It was this kind of uh, grinded out affair, and and the Division Two championship game gets broadcast on on CBS. So this is where I watched this game, um, and uh, it was a grinded out affair. The teams were kind of back and forth down the stretch. The, uh, the game was tied with uh, about five seconds left to go. The Oilers had possession. They, uh, their, their star player drives in. He gets double teamed. He kicks it out. They swing it around, and the ball gets to the, uh, the Finley Oilers' best shooter uh, that season, and he takes a step-back three as the buzzer expires and hits it to win the national championship. Uh, so, uh, oh, yeah, that was, that was quite a, uh, that was quite an amazing thing. You can probably find the highlights on YouTube if any of you listening are curious, but the Finley Oilers championship in 2009, that was a, that was a great fun experience, especially since, you know, I had actually gone to, to some of the games and, and seen that team play. Um, but then, uh, you know, a few years uh, later, this was, this is probably quite a few years later. This was probably around 2015 or 2016. They, uh, the Oilers had another star player. His name was Greg Colleg. And uh, he was uh, about a 6'5 kind of power forward. His game was uh, eerily reminiscent of, like, he was essentially the Dirk Nowitzki of Division II basketball that season. Um, uh, just, a, just a pure shooter. Uh, he had, like, that uh, kind of that step-back jumper that uh, didn't look exactly like Dirk's one-legged fadeaway. Not quite as pretty, but uh, pretty good for the D2 level. And 
in the uh, the conference tournament, uh, the, the the best team in the in the conference during the regular season got to host the conference tournament, and the Oilers were the one seed, so they were playing at home. So I got to see the basically the whole tournament there uh, that took place over the course of a weekend. And in the conference semifinals of that tournament, Greg Colleg went for fifty five, and uh, <laughs> yeah, he uh, he was hitting. Three after three, step back after step back. You, you know, the opposing team uh, just threw everybody at him, and no one could stop him. And uh, I, I still remember it's, it's hilarious. I, I ended up going to a, uh, I don't know if you've heard of Teamwork Online, but they're a site that sort of uh, hooks up people trying to, to make it in the sports industry, and they set up like, uh, you know, little gatherings and, and things with, with executives of teams. And, and I actually was at one of those events, and I met a guy that was on the team that uh, lost a great colleague in the semis, and he still remembered that. And this was this was about three, you know, three or four years after the fact, and, and he just said to me, man, that, that was a bad man. <laughs> <laughs> that's all you can say sometimes with the best, man. Like, when they get on and they get going, that's, that's a bad one. <laughs> Well, yeah. Um, that's fire, though. That's a double nickel, man. Yep. In, uh, in, the, in a conference tournament semifinal was, uh, yeah, was, was quite impressive. And, and yeah, I uh, thought it'd be fun to mention something that, you know, I guarantee 100% of the people that are listening to this didn't watch. But, uh, yeah, I, I also wanted to, to talk and, and, and get into some of your favorite series you've seen and, and some what were some of your favorite ones to watch? Of course, one one I'll mention because you brought up Nick Young earlier was that Oklahoma City Memphis series in 2012 where they had that game one where the Grizzlies got up, I believe it was 25 to 30 points in the first half, and then the uh, the Clippers led by uh, or excuse me, I said OKC, I meant the the Los Angeles Clippers versus the Grizzlies. Chris Paul just uh, carries the Clippers back in the fourth quarter, and he's uh, he's constantly breaking the defense down, getting in transition, and finding Nick Young, and he hits about four or five threes in a row in the fourth quarter to bring the Clippers back, and, and they end up stealing game one and, and winning that series in seven. But I remember uh, those Grizzlies teams, they had a bunch of fun battles with not only the Clippers, but uh, also the Spurs and... And then also the, uh, the those Grizzlies Thunder matchups were were incredibly fun. Yeah, I was just about to mention one myself. But those three teams, you're right, matching up Clippers, Spurs, Spurs, uh, Spurs, uh, Grizzlies, the Thunder in the mix. Those guys had battles. Um, in fact, one I, I could trade off with you too. Uh, my favorite, or one of my favorites, was the 2015 Clippers versus Spurs first round. Yes. Um, it was way too good for a first-round series. Oh, my goodness. It played out like a conference finals for six games. And then the seventh game was down to the very, very end. Uh, or Isaiah, uh, Chris Paul did like an Isaiah Thomas playing with an injury, but really with just one healthy hamstring for a game where in the final seconds off of one leg. It was, it was crazy. It was insane. Um, you, the Spurs are coming off of their 2014 uh, championship. They're still in the mix. Duncan played well. Um, and this is like the last year I felt where he was really like, what, he had 27 and 11, I think he had, as far as 27 points, 11 rebounds. Matt Barnes played well. Blake Griffin had a triple-double. It, it, that, to me, was an amazing, amazing series. 
Yeah, that honestly, like, uh, given Kawhi Leonard's spectacular postseason resume, that that to me is the one uh, black mark on his playoff career was that series. I thought he was, you know, um, you know, not that he was bad, but he just wasn't at the level that I saw from him that season. And in re- in reality, I think uh, you know, you mentioned that was Tim Duncan's kind of final great performance. I thought he was the best player on the Spurs in that series. Oh yeah, no, no doubt. I mean, someone to lead like that was just—it was crazy. Like, I mean, as far as Tim being, you know, and I think 2016 he played well. It wasn't like Tim Duncan never had like a drop off. He was such a solid player. But I remember looking back, going, "Wow, like this is year what, 16, 15, 16? I forgot." And they are still playing through this man, and he is delivering on a consistent basis. It was amazing, and this Clippers team was ready to get over the hump. The Clippers had been through. The Donald Sterling thing, you'd already been through coming on short in 2014. They really thought this was their year. And so you had two teams playing with desperation, um, like an older team really trying to hold on um, and, and, and try to defend their title, a young team or a younger-ish team really trying to surpass them and advance in this uh, Custer Western Conference. And those games, man, you can watch any one of those and just feel the tension excitement all over again. So that's one for me. I'm going to throw it back to you. Yeah, I mean, uh, going back to... Uh, you know, you mentioned a lot of those uh, Phoenix Lakers battles, and uh, I loved the the 2010 uh, Western Conference Finals. I thought that was a heck of a lot of fun. Uh, and 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 speaking too, you know, you you mentioned you were excited about that. I believe it was that 2013 Lakers kind of super team when when Pow, Dwight, Kobe, and Nash all teamed up. Uh, people forget that Steve Nash was like 38 years old when that team was formed, and. Uh, the, the, I think the reason that is is because he had such an amazing 37-year-old season in that lockout-shortened year where he kept the Suns team with really nobody. He kept them at 500. Um, their, like, second-best player on that team was Jared Dudley and Channing Frye. Like, <laughs> that, uh, that roster was, was pretty weak. That was obviously post, um, you know, Amari Stoudemire. They had let him go. Sean Marion had left. So a lot of that, those uh, Suns teams that were really good in the in the mid two thousands, a lot of that core was gone. But yeah, the um, the the Nash uh, versus the Nash's Suns versus the Lakers were fun. The Nash's Suns versus the Spurs that 20, 2007 series was great. Oh my uh, now a lot of those yeah. Western, I mean, really to me, it comes down to a lot of the Western Conference for the last two decades. Uh, you know, the Spurs Mavericks series in 2006 that comes down to overtime in Game 7. Uh, yeah, there was just, there's just too many great series to count in that Western Conference. And then, you know, we've we've already covered a bunch of, of fun series, uh, whereas in like the 80s and 90s, I think a lot of the fun stuff was in the East. Oh, yeah. No, they really were. I mean, we, we, were, we wrote down that 84 Pistons-Knicks. You had a lot of fun. I mean, they weren't fun in terms of watchability, but I, I watched a lot of Knicks and Heat, a lot of Knicks and Pacers. Um, another favorite series of mine, just personal, was the 1988 Western Conference Finals between the Lakers and the Mavericks. Um, really enjoyed that. Um, yeah, you had a bunch of them in the East that were just going crazy. Uh, the, 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 the sneaky team, early 2000s, uh, the Milwaukee Bucks. Yeah, with uh, with Ray uh, Allen and, uh, and and... And Glenn Big Dog Robinson and Sam Cassell. Yeah, Sam Cassell, exactly. That was a fun team. Um, and the matchups uh, with them and the 76ers were great. The Pacers were good throughout. Like you said, um, from the from the early mid-90s to the early 2000s, 
a lot of the fun ones were in the East. You know, even had, you know, the New Jersey Nets and them playing well with um, Jason Kidd. In fact, that leads me to one more Western Conference one that I, I really enjoyed. I think it was a 2000, I want to say three, playoff series, Suns versus uh, Spurs. Uh, 2000. Stephon Marbury game winner, I think. Maybe. Okay. I, I am not I super familiar with that uh, that 2003 Suns team. Yeah, so it was, um, I'm making sure, yeah, first round, I did have it right. Okay, good. So, um, it was, um, the Spurs won, obviously, they went on to win the whole thing, 4-2. to two. But with that Suns team, you did have um, Stephon Marbury at the helm, um, Sean Marion, Amari Stoudemire, Penny Hardaway, still playing, and was decent. We had Joe Johnson on that team. Um, that was really it. Oh, Scott Williams, the guy who signed my jersey, he was on that team. Um, <laughs> and I remember it, game one, the Spurs were stunned by the Suns. Stephon Marbury hit a game winner. And then I think the Suns won game, I want to say game three or four. Uh, no, they won game four. And then the Spurs won every other game. But that first game was so well because it was like, wow, the Suns kind of stuck in there. You know, and they were an interesting team. Uh, I want to say a team con transition because you're right. It was, it was a year before Steve Nash um, kind of came on the helm. Uh, you had Frank Johnson as the coach, if you remember him. Uh, oh, yeah. From the 80s, uh, coaching. Yeah, exactly. And this team was kind of on the pack, but they were an interesting team. Uh, definitely interesting team. Won the upper end in pace. Uh, and, you know, they what, 44 and 38. They came in, and it, it was a series I remember watching going, wow, like, I never thought for a second the Suns were going to beat the Spurs that series. But I thought. Oh, this could be interesting. And, you know, that, that interesting is kind of fun, too. And then, 2018, um, the, the, I like all the Cavs games in that 2018 playoff series was, like, running the gamut, like the gauntlet of opponents where it felt like the Cavs were vulnerable and the was playing at his absolute best. But that Eastern Conference Finals against the Boston Celtics where you had the two teams, obviously, you know, the Boston was playing with the strength of numbers, having their injuries, Cleveland being different, playing literally everything through LeBron. But I enjoyed watching those games. Even if the finals was anticlimactic, I really enjoyed that conference finals. Absolutely. Well, yeah, I think we've uh, we've spent enough time covering the entire, uh, you know, sort of trajectory of our basketball lives here. Was there anything oh, else, Corbin, that, uh, that you thought we should uh, discuss? Uh, about uh, really anything involving the sport before we go? You know what? Okay, so real quick, we talked about this kind of before, um, at least in our own personal sex and stuff, but what are you as far as NBA video games or NBA games in general? Because for me, I play, like I said, I'm, I, I'm, a, I'm an NBA 2K fan, but not of the recent variety. Um, really, my problem 2K13 as far as gameplay and whatnot. And I also have this... Uh, simulator i use online it's called basketball gm which is a really fun game as far as like doing a lot of the gm off-season stuff but what they have is um the people who play this game is just really um connect the community reddit and everything they have these uh draft classes and everything built so you can start from like the 50s or the 60s or 80s whatever you want and kind of simulate through the years build your team up with you know actual nba players because the defaults to just auto-generate computer players almost like you know you're you're running the mill football GM or something of that sort, but basketball, and so those are like the recreational stuff I do, like right now, or not right now, but I have a, like the Phoenix Suns I've had for 20 years, I'm in the 80s right now, and I made a bunch of trades in the 80, in the 81 drafts so I could get Isaiah Thomas and Mark Aguirre, and we've been pretty solid as a team, but like, I'm saying that as far as like, entertainment-wise, video game-wise, as it pertains to basketball, what's kind of your go-to, what are your, uh, what are your things there? 
Yeah, I mean, I uh, I've I've played my fair share of, of basketball games. I uh, uh, I mentioned this to you on Twitter, but uh, you know, pretty early on, there was uh, you know in the in the late '90s, there was games like uh, you know NBA Jam, and uh, there were there were variations of the the NBA Jam formula that I played quite a bit of, where you could create your own character and. And obviously, you've got the you can dunk from half court if you catch fire, and and all that sort of stuff. That kind of goofy basketball game was was one of my favorites because the the realistic Sims hadn't really developed to a to a high level at that point. Um, but then uh, you know when you get into the early two thousands, NBA Inside Drive I thought was really ahead of its time, especially from a graphics standpoint. Uh, those games looked really great uh, when a lot of other sports games looked pretty terrible like you could actually see like the muscles and the tone of guys and uh, that was um believe it or not back in like 2004 that was uh, unusual and uh you know i i eventually got into the 2k series probably in the in the later versions of the the 2000s like uh, 2k9 and 2k10 is kind of where i got into it and and that was to me kind of the peak of the series as far as the the classic teams and 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 they even built in game modes where I believe it was 2K11 where Michael Jordan was on the cover. You got to play uh, through like all of his greatest moments. That was something I loved to do. And then in 2K12, uh, they they did more of just like the general classic game formula uh, with with those modes. So a lot of it was you know enjoying the classic teams. You know I was in college during those years as well so uh i got to play with my roommates at times and and we would always play like the the 86 celtics versus the 87 lakers uh so, so that was that was a lot of fun and uh you know actually in 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 2k12 i remember my go-to player surprisingly being george hill and uh um you know you know when it comes to the 2k game a lot of it is about that shot timing and for some reason or another, I just had perfected George Hill's shot. So I was putting up 50 on a consistent basis with my man George Hill. Okay, see, and that's what I love about those mid-2000s up to 2K14 uh, play styles as far as you had to learn the player and their shot. Uh, and for me, I mean, the shot meter now that they have from 2K15 on, it's fine. I'm, I understand they're trying to let everyone else have an easier time playing. But it was something satisfying about getting the difference between Kobe Bryant's shot and Dwayne Wade's shot down, even though they were more similar to each other, but different than, say, a Wesley Johnson or a Monte Ellis. And that was different. Michael Beasley's shot was so quick, but it was also like it started early. So if you missed it just wrong, if you missed it just off by a touch, it was going long into the back of the rim. But if you nailed it, especially his turnaround, I had the timing on that amazingly. Like if I wanted a game-winning shot or literally any shot I wanted, get the ball to Beasley, do a clear out, post up, get him out to the free throw area, and then at that point it was a sense of timing and when to let go of the shot button to know, okay, that shot's going in. It was, uh, that's probably still why I play those games. Because this, the rosters are long gone. I'm not playing for, for the teams there. But I think it's funny to do fantasy drafts, and I'm definitely a my GM guy. That is literally the only thing I play these games for. And so it's fun to kind of go back in there and sim a couple of years and just, that, that's why I find my joy as someone who doesn't play a lot of video games at all, but has his one or two. Yeah, I mean the uh, speaking to your comments about the the shot timing, I did enjoy that as well, and it did make the game, you know, more fun to to experience. My only issue with it was, 
you know, for those guys, especially those guys with the long releases, um, because the, uh, you know, with, with any sports game, the animation is never going to be as fast to, to actually get it accurate that, uh, as like the actual action in real life. So I, I, I specifically remember a guy like uh, Al Farouk Aminu had just such a slow release in some of those games. And if, uh, you know, for you to get it right, you would get blocked half the time because it would just take that long. Um, which I understand in real life, like how long your release is negatively impacts you, but it felt like, you know, that times 10 with, uh, with the NBA 2K franchise. And yeah, the, I, I do enjoy the, the drafting and, and doing a franchise and, and, uh, developing my players. I would, I would do the, the franchise mode and then you could, you could sim the games, but then each month you could do specific types of player training on guys. And uh, in my early years, you know, when I was playing, when I was a, still a Cavs fan and, and enjoying that, I would I would always uh, train Tristan Thompson with the ball handling every month. So by like year three, he had ninety ball handling. Um, so so like, you know stuff like that. Uh, so that I just had like a team that uh, their all their skills were like at a really high level. If if they struggled to shoot, I would do the shooting drills for them. Um, so, so that was what I would do. The, the issue I've always had though, is the gameplay. I've, I've always struggled with it. I mean, it, it, it is fun when you can get and play with another person that you're friendly with. And just the, I think it's more fun just because of the competitiveness of it as opposed to the actual game. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I would, I would sim a few seasons and, and build up my team and then I'd be like, okay, it's time to try these guys out. I want to see what a 92 overall Tristan Thompson feels like in the game. Um, but, uh, but by, by the time I, I would play a game or two, I would realize, oh yeah, this gameplay isn't that fun. And then I would probably stop and, and start the whole process over again. I think that has to suck with the gameplay is like the one flaw in it. That's kind of why I found that basketball GM game I play on the computer where it's like, I oh, know I'm not going to be playing with these guys because there's no play option. It's just you draft your team, you do your free agency, you pick your finances, whatever, you sim the year, you know, and you can stop at certain junctures and see the players you have. I mean, it'd be fun to play with, like, you know, what 2K provides, like the old Julius Irving or, you know, Isaiah Thomas and the Mark Aguirre's of the world. But at the same time, when the gameplay is a letdown on a game, <laughs> that, that's, that's, that's pretty bad. So I get you. But I was curious because I'm like, you know, you think the game and how well how, how much you're into it i was like okay game wise like is that something that garrett's into yeah i i saw a tweet by De'Aaron fox recently it was in it was a response to uh 2k like saying that the the visuals for 2k 21 will be better than ever and his and uh, De'Aaron fox's response was imagine a world in which you think the visuals are the problem that needs addressed uh, I, I absolutely loved that because yeah that's that seems to be their priority every year is to just like focus on the visuals and and the in arena experience you know they added like the the inside the nba crew up at one point and it's just like i don't care about that just make a game that is a good basketball simulation that's all that should matter but you know 2k is raking in the money every year people continue to buy it uh, and, uh, that, you know, as long as people are, are giving them the money, they're, they're never going to, you know, fix the error of their ways. Yeah. It's like, what are the recourse do they have? They'll continue doing what they're doing. So that's exactly, that's why my protest is like, you know what? I'm still going to play my little classic ones. I have them literally downloaded on this little PSP go. 
that while, that's like considered my gaming experience in general. So I was like, okay, get a few minutes here. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> yeah. The fun of it. But yeah, it's that that's one of the frustrating things. I wish NBA Live would come back. Then I'll play an old NBA Live once in a while and realize, no, you're good. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, um, you know, for me, I, I've, I, I love sports games there. You know, I play a variety of video games, but sports games are my favorite. And uh, it, it has been frustrating that I've had to resort to, to other sports that I don't like quite as much as basketball, but because the games are actually better, those are what I play. You know, I, uh, I played Top Spin 4, uh, the tennis game. That was a 2K game, surprisingly, but uh, that was actually a really fun gameplay for, for a tennis game. And, and there's been like one made tennis game since, and that game came out like 15 years ago. Uh, so, uh, for some reason, there's no demand for, for tennis video games. Um, but then also, you know, I've, I've really gotten into, in recent years, the, the Pez franchise, Pro Evolution Soccer. I think that is a, a pretty great simulation of the, uh, of the game. And, and for me, the, the biggest uh, test of, uh, a games, of the gameplay quality is, you know, can you play the computer and can this feel like an actual game in that sport and is it fun? And 2K has always failed that test and, and for the last about five years I feel like uh, Pez has has uh, passed it. And, and that, that, honestly, that's a good barometer of how to play the game. I, I completely concur with you, you know? <laughs> Well, yeah, this is uh, this has been a lot of fun. We've uh, we've covered the gamut of all things basketball. Uh, I really enjoyed it, Corbin. It was it was good to sort of uh, get to know you a little bit more and 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 learn a more more about your uh, basketball journey. Uh, thanks for doing this. This was a lot of fun. Hey, likewise, Garrett. This was a lot of fun to kind of go down memory lane and, and have that exchange. And just like you said, I feel I learned a lot as well. So I'm I'm happy to have this uh, conversation. Thank you, man. Well, and uh, now, again, as uh, you are the, the co-host, would you like to uh, to sign us off? <laughs> yeah, okay, here we go. Um, <laughs> definitely make sure to uh, follow or subscribe while I'm stumbling with my words. Uh, Duncan Dynasty, uh, follow this great co-host here, Garrett Bougay, at Garrett Bougay. Am I right, Garrett? Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> All right, here we go. I follow, but I, I don't memorize it there. Um, follow me at Corbin NBA, but... Uh, Until next time, check out the great content, stay safe, and uh, we'll catch you next time.